So, so it is changing, and I cannot predict, but I can imagine the way of using furniture and the way that we use it and the purpose we use it for will change. And therefore, we probably need to be smart and bold and innovative on how does a meeting take place in the future and what do you need there? Do you need to stand up? Do you need to lie down? Do you need to sit down? All of those things I think we, we are curious about right now. Curious is, by the way, also a very saying word of Fortensen. We, Although we seem 150 years old with a lot of classic furniture, we are extremely curious but because otherwise we, will, we don't want to be a museum. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as a home and design director at Departures Magazine, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Welcome to a very special episode of The Grand Tourist, sponsored by Fritz Hansen. In the world of design, it's rare for companies to stand the test of time, both through constant innovation and timeless products. These brands can survive for decades, but only a select few can count their legacy in triple digits. Fritz Hansen is one of those names. For 150 years, this Danish furniture and lighting brand has produced an important stable of iconic 20th century designs for the home, by legendary names such as Arne Jakobsen, Hans Wegner, and Paul Kerholm. Not only does Fritz Hansen act as a steward of the past, but carries his legacy of modernism forward with contemporary collaborations from pioneers such as Jaime Hayon, Nendo, and our former guest, Piero Lissoni. The story of Fritz Hansen began in 1872 in Copenhagen, where Fritz Hansen himself, a cabinet maker, started a workshop and following commissions for some of the most important projects in the country at the time, like Copenhagen City Hall, the Hansen family built a business that rode the many radical waves of change that followed. Industrialization, the Belle Epoque, and the mid-century. Despite the story legacy behind the brand, after World War II, one designer shaped the company into what we know of it today, Arne Jakobsen. The famed Danish talent created masterpieces that are still bestsellers, like the upholstered egg chair, the hourglass-shaped Series 7 chair, and the groovy swan chair. On this episode, I speak with Christian Andreessen, the design ambassador for Fritz Hansen, and also the former head of design of the company. And later on, I'll speak with one of the biggest fans of all things Arne Jakobsen, Carla Sorzani. Sorzani is one of the greatest fashion, design, and retail gurus today. But you may know her for her legendary brand and Milan concept store, Ten Corso Como. Andreessen and Sorzani worked together on an ambitious collaboration to select a new fashionable palette of contemporary colors for Jakobsen's Series 7. But first, I wanted to quiz Andreessen, who began his career as a designer for firms such as the award-winning Henning Larsen Architects, about the meaning of Fritz Hansen to all Danes, the early years of the company, the dawn of modernism, and what made Arne Jakobsen the genius who shaped design as we know it. As a designer in Denmark, before you took the job at Fritz Hansen, what was your perception of the name? Like as a Dane, like what did it mean to you? Even before my time here, Fritz Hansen is something you you associate with products and you associate it with designers and you associate it with your life because it is everywhere and it is the uh, it's a brand and it's a it's a lifestyle and it's a uh, there's a lot of things here. I grew up with uh, with Fritz Hansen products in my parents' home and I think a lot of Danes do and a lot of Scandinavians do and a lot of other designers beautiful products but but uh, but the recognizable products of of especially Arne Jacobsen 
Pokerhold was part of my childhood. So, so I had a not a vast knowledge, but some knowledge. And because of my three years at at, at design school in in the furniture line, uh, I knew all about the designers and their products, and 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 felt very comfortable jumping into that to the world of keeping those relevant in time and develop new products uh, for for uh, for such a, a distinguished brand. I I felt to a certain extent that I was and I came home in a way. Um, I think a lot of people who work for for Tencent do because there is this, this relationship to the brand and the products. But I also uh, found that that uh, a lot of my preconceptions or a lot of the things that I thought about was uh, was shamefully uh, not right. And stories were were probably much more uh, deep and much more rooted in in the way that an, a 150 year old company is is uh, has has had its life. And I just talking about the designers and the products is just the scraping the surface of, of any company and I think that goes for many companies so the deeper I got in the more uh, the more I loved it and what 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 products did you grow up with in your household what Fritz Hansen products I grew up with what what uh, I would normally call today the kind of the democratic products of Fritz Hansen's golden era. It was the dining, the Span Lake dining tables. It was the seminar chair. I can remember my grandmother had an egg chair and you know they, they were everywhere, those uh, products. And also some of the uh, products that are no longer in, in manufacturing. I grew up in the, I can probably start remembering something from the late 60s up, but in the 70s, all these steel furnitures came with with the uh, with uh, with Fritz Hansen and I can remember being at friends' houses where they suddenly had these weird Penton furniture, steel furniture things that Fritz Hansen made the one two three system and the uh, the tulip shaped ones and in kind of people who lived this '70s style a little bit more, so so they were just everywhere. I sat on a uh, on a Fortensen chair at school. It was it is everywhere. It's also in our institutions. You sit in a you sit in a seven chair when you wait at the dentist's office, and you know it's it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you say that there were when you arrived that there were these misconceptions that you know once you were on the inside, you realized how how things truly were. Like what can you explain what that what that what that was? You know, in the beginning, when I talked to them about uh, taking this job, I said to them, please remember that I'm a client. I was a client. So so I have spent 10 years at, at Henning Larsen. Every time we did a project, uh, we lifted the uh, the furniture catalogs and started a dialogue with the with the clients, so whoever they were, uh, Novo, uh, Nordea, the Microsoft, what furnishing do you want? What's the style and tone that you want? And there, I, I probably charged the point for attention with all projects that I've ever done in those 10 years and often had a dialogue with the salespeople asking for solutions and for uh, you know what the product could offer the stories that I could bring to the client and say no choose this chair instead because this will last you longer this is whatever the uh, the argument was and there I had a conception of what for Tansen was quality all of these things and and that was not proven wrong when I came but but the uh, let's say the process of how to make the products the 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 things that go into to telling the stories around the products and the importance of design being core in a company like Fritzensen surprised me. Not that I didn't know that they had a, a very uh, professional and very kind of commercial approach towards how their products were used, but let's say the dialogues and the uh, the interest for what goes on on the outside. I didn't know that what I asked the uh, sales girl or sales boy or guy at the time actually flew back to Fritzensen as Intel in how to work with their products in the future. And that, that uh, of course, was uh, 
was a pleasant surprise and, and something that I actually took into the new job of being a little bit more interested in the outside world than, uh, than designing something that completely leaned into the, uh, to the nature of the brand. Then you kind of evolutionize or evolve. And, and I thought that maybe we could dare to also try to revolutionize a little bit or at least experiment. And, and, and that was a big relief for me that that was something that they actually expected from me. And, and that's also why they chose somebody from, let's say, the client side instead of choosing a, let's say, proven designer or a proven uh, person who had spent uh, his or her entire life around furniture. The company's history is often delineated between pre-Jakobsen and, and sort of post-Jakobsen because he was so influential. Can you take us through the company's early years? You know, what do you, what made it such a success in the early days? I did a masterclass last week for uh, our advisors, meaning our brand agencies and everybody, and they felt that they needed to know more about Futensen. And I especially focused on the period pre-Jakobsen. And that is because I think there are so many things that happens at that time that actually made it possible to meet Jacobsen because Jacobsen could have come here and if we had said uh, polystyrene and uh, bent plywood and, and shook our heads, he would have gone somewhere else and this whole thing would be different. I think there is a lot of preface to, to the golden era of Danish design where Fritzensen was ready and was prepared and was uh, curious and was innovative and industrialized themselves and stuff like that. That meant that we were ready for that. Remember that Fritzensen started like 1872 uh, that's at least where he got his uh, letter of commerce and, and was allowed to manufacture wood in the city of Copenhagen. He um, he started in a time of period where the Industrial Revolution had begun its sweep through Danish uh, society as well, as it did in the UK and in the rest of Europe and in America. And that period was a period of, of enormous growth and enormous appetite for the good life. People moved to the city, all of those things. So that period of 20, 30 years between 1870 and 1900 was probably mostly for the accuracy, the craftsmanship, and the determination of of Fritzensen to to uh, to become a uh, successful manufacturer through industrialization. And it was a family business in the beginning. It was a family business. It was founded by Fritz Hansen himself. Uh, he very early in his life uh, created Fritz Hansen and Company because he was uh, he was not well. He was ill, and uh, his son, uh, twenty years, twenty one years old, uh, was taken into the company. And at the age twenty six, he uh, took over the company. So a very sort of uh, early. Uh, retirement uh, from from Fritzensen and and his son Christian Hansen uh, taking over and and growing the company through the next two decades of its life. The two things that I think is most important about the early uh, uh, Fritzensen life or the early company life was one the the, uh, the the strong belief that industrial products could be beautiful and could be crafted in a way where they were lasting in a high quality instead of being handmade or hand carved as wood was at that time. The second thing was that he thought supply chain. And it sounds weird, but he did. Well, today we're all talking about supply chains. So what did he get right about a supply chain back then? He, he bought a forest. Uh, if you manufacture wood, uh, what do you do? And if you manufacture in the middle of the city and you uh, are successful and people want to buy your furniture and you're sub- supplying a lot of other furniture manufacturers and you start uh, doing products and architects come ask you in the late 1890s, do you want to do 2,000 chairs for the parliament or 500 chairs for the parliament or 1,000 chairs for this uh, office building? He was intrigued by the ability to become a, a commercial and industrial manufacturer of furniture. And to do that, you need supply. And, and you can buy that 
and 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 you are vulnerable, or you can at that time in industrialization you could buy a forest and you were self-supplying, and that's what he did. He he was allowed to up here where I sit now at the head, old headquarters that has been here since 1892 or 95 was the sawmill. So up here north of Copenhagen, I said 22 kilometers north of Copenhagen is uh, our facility that has grown to a huge size. But in the old days, this was uh, the forest and the sawmill. So the lumber was cut here. It was into manageable sizes. The location is uh, the second stop to Denmark's first railroad between uh, the Copenhagen city and the northern part of Sealand, where we sit. So he had a transportation into the city, which was now rail instead of horse. And all of those things, the the the, the sort of the, the industrial magnet of Fritz Hansen uh, was, uh, was his ability to understand what you need to do if you are to have a successful industrial company making something handcrafted uh, as, as furniture was at that time. So, so those two periods of, of first of all, uh, creating a company that was desirable and and had a quality that people desired, and secondly, uh, ensuring that that uh, the company could grow by uh, by having the resources themselves, uh, was what he delivered to his son. And the son uh, immediately uh, expanded the company to almost double size by just uh, starting to what became modern in the early 1900s, 1910s of marketing your product. So we have these beautiful books all the way back from 1910 paper clippings where the, there is these ads about the the new sofa from Fritz Hansen. <laughs> you know, that's also the time. Remember, this is the time of, of information becoming available and therefore you are able to commercialize and advertise your your products. And what was the design culture in Denmark at the time? What 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 was when what what did they do differently that was maybe new and exciting that got them all these amazing commissions in the early days? Because today we think of Denmark as such a progressive design-driven society where Fritz Hansen products are everywhere. But at the time before Fritz Hansen existed, what was that design culture like? I think as as in many other, especially in Europe at the time, there was this time, the 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 Reformation time as we call it, you know, 1850 to 1900 probably. The people's homes were what we in Denmark call kind of over-decorated. Uh, you had Rococo furniture, you had the Louis Seize furniture, you had, but they were all industrial made so people could buy them. They were available. And th- at that time it was over-decorated, it was heavy, it was dark, it was uh, curtains, it was we all live in this Victorian style that had been in fashion probably a hundred years earlier, but was suddenly revised again because now everybody could have them because Fertensen and all the others could do them at an affordable price. So there was no real design. It was more like you copied something. You copied a style and a way of living, which was kind of over-decorated. The, the reaction to all of this was actually happening in Central Europe, and it was happening twofold. It was happening with the Art Nouveau, uh, uh, kind of uh, in the beginning of the 10s, probably 1912, 13, 14, where they started saying, let's scrape off all these um, all these decorations and all this excess and try to find out what a, what a good, solid, quality, uh, ergonomic uh, thing was. So it that exploded into the, the Art Nouveau uh, move, and it also exploded into the Bauhaus move. So there was kind of a French way, and there was a German way of looking at uh, design, and especially on product design and furniture design. At the same time, the architects in Denmark, a small country, five million people, had to look elsewhere, 
to be uh, to be employed and to have influence. So they, of course, looked to France and they looked to Germany. They looked to the U.S. What went on there? And I think in the early 10s, 20s, a Danish organization called Skønbjerg, which means uh, the uh, the arts and crafts of of uh, of beauty it actually means it has a really weird translation in english the 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 actual magazine itself or the actual organization but they started uh, promoting and uh, let's say uh, started telling stories about what went on outside denmark in the design world in architecture in art in fashion in all of these things that grew in the early 1900 they were published in skønvirke which was a magazine and that formed a a series of and, and 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 some individuals in the design and architect business who got this international influx from from all around, and the grand old man or the grand master of Danish design, Carl Clint, was probably together with his father some of the first ones that started working with this modernistic, simplistic um, Danish. Uh, kind of uh, architecture and design style uh, back in 1910, 15, 20. And it evolved, and it evolved quickly because uh, Clint uh, was doing a, in at that time, after the First World War, a lot of countries in Europe said no more war. And a lot of, um, and, and it would only last 20 years, but then it whole, the whole thing started again, or 30 years. But at least in that period in the middle there, there was a lot of governments and states in, in, in Europe. The, 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 suddenly the, uh, the landscape of Europe looked a little bit different after the First World War. And uh, a lot of governments there thought, let's do something here, that let's spend some money on public here. So they started building schools and churches and uh, and universities and uh, hospitals and whatever, penicillin hospitals and all of that. So a lot of money flew into society it built. And a lot of the countries here actually, and especially in Denmark, dared to build uh, with architects that were not building in, in the old style, but, but was influenced by an international tone and by good thinking. Some of them came to Fortensen with their products and said, Mr. Hansen, you are the, uh, you are the, the most industrial manufacturer in, 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 in Denmark. Please help me do my church chair for my new Grundvis church outside Copenhagen. And, and there, the relation between designer, architect and Fortensen was born. And I have this saying that at that time, I think both Hansen as an entity, because now there were even more sons and daughters, uh, and the 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 thought of working with architects or designers to develop their products was born. So this is way back in the early twenties, and from there on, the road was paved for Jacobsen and Kerholm. So a long explanation to back to Jacobsen and Kerholm, but but I think here that the, the, some of the things that happens before Jacobsen and Kerholm was actually uh, driven by someone that uh, that paved the way both in the Hansen organization or in our company but also in the Danish design and architecture world and how did Arne Jakobsen first uh, come to Fritz Hansen how was he introduced how did that happen he came here very early in his career with some of his building projects uh, he came here with the Bellevue project which is a a sort of an, a housing and beach resort uh, north of Copenhagen uh, he made that uh, in the 20s uh, in his uh, as an architectural project and he came to Fortensen talking about could we do blah blah it never it never came to uh, he he had contacts sort of sporadically through the um, the 30s uh, with Fortensen made a few products here for projects made some bespoke furniture for projects with him so there was always this connection between Jacobsen and and the Hansen uh, sons which were now two 
So the third generation is here in the 30s. Um, but then the war came, and Jacobsen was Jewish, so he had to flee, and he fled to Sweden, like many of the Danish Jews did. Uh, and there he couldn't work because that was not allowed uh, during the war. So he spent five years over there, um, taking uh, remotely care of his business in 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 the at the studio, but also doing other things, uh, tapestries and watercoloring and gardening and stuff. He he got this the thing that he carried with him most of his life actually happened in that period of his life. After the war, he came back, and at that time he was the the hero of 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 return. And 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 his the Bellevue project and some of the other things he did before the war was actually well uh, received by 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 the public. And straight after he came home, he started getting big commissions for projects. And in late '49, early '50, he got the commission to do Novo Nordisk, which is a pharmaceutical company. They needed a new Copenhagen headquarter. And he was commissioned to do that. And at that time, he had spent a little time uh, traveling. And he had been in America. And he had been to Finland. And he had been to Germany. And he had been all over. And uh, he actually also was inspired by what Fritzensen was uh, was experimenting with, which was plywood. Uh, plywood is a product of the war, pre-war and war. It's for airplanes and for other things. Um, and Sinan and Eames and Ironman and many of the furniture designers in around the world experimented with with, uh, with plywood in the 40s and 50s. Jacobsen's uh, normal way of thinking was, let's do something that the others can't. Let's set ourselves a, a high goal here, a curious and ambitious goal of making a one-piece plywood chair. If you look at the sign and chair and the Eames chair, plywood chair, and the Ironman plywood chair, they are two-piece products. So it's a seat and a back suspended by some kind of metal frame. And the ant chair, which was the product that he then designed for Fortensen is a one-piece ply chair, press-molded plywood. And that was unique. And in the and and the let's say the the sculptural designer Arne Jacobsen and Fortensen was born. So it's in that meat of technology, interest, uh, inspiration, and a material that actually led to not by coincidence, you could say to some coincidence, happened up uh, at that time. And that was the explosion in the relationship between uh, Jacobsen and Fred Hansen. And, and that became the beginning of a collaboration with him uh, with almost all his projects. And, and what do you think, Arne Jacobsen, uh, what made him so successful as a designer? You know, if you were to meet him today, what would you say? Oh, now I understand why he's he he was such a genius. Like, what was what was his secret? What made him different from all of his contemporaries? I think there are two or three things. Um, one thing is that I think if you imagine, you you probably we probably all have examples of. I can just do a Danish one, but we probably all have examples of a designer crossing time and creating something immaculate. You know, they they meet, time flies along, this designer or this idea comes from the side, and when they collide, there's this nuclear explosion. And then it becomes a Sydney Opera House or a whatever, because you, you there's something unique happening at the moment. There's the right circumstances, but you cross time in a line like this, and then either you continue or you disappear into oblivion. But the explosion there is kind of very powerful. What I think Jakobsen does is that he understands time. And he works parallel with time. He gets influence and he influences back. He gets influence, he influences back. So he's a curious soul. And that's what makes him, I think, a different designer than many others. And then he had that 
profound belief that buildings should be as beautiful from the inside as from the outside. The furniture in there should be a sculpture and should give something to the room and it should be able to explain why by itself almost. And it should always be in contrast. So he believed in that duality in, in throughout his entire life. He did landscapes for buildings. He did doorknobs and, and uh, doors, uh, light switches. And he did whatever for his projects because he had this interest in the gesamt or the, the, com, the, the full experience of architecture and design and living. And then he was very good at asking questions about how do you want to use your thing, Mr. Client or Miss Client. And that, I think, is also a proof of a, let's say, a a consultant or a client-related architect or designer. And he collaborated. He wasn't. He didn't say, thank you, Mr. Hansen, I'll go back to my studio and, uh, and I'll come up with a jewel uh, when we meet again. He was here. With his uh, pipe and his uh, and his uh, brown, uh, you know, uh, coat, doctor's almost like a janitor's coat, and he was out here beside the machines and talking to the carpenters. And so I think there's a lot of thing that points towards the talent of Arne Jacobsen being uh, understanding what what uh, what time he was designing in. One of Arne Jacobsen's greatest fans is Carlos Sotsani. Sotsani is a major force in the world of fashion and design. A former magazine editor turned gallerist. The Milan-based innovator today runs 10 Corso Como, a legendary concept shop and destination in Milan that has permanently altered the world of cutting-edge retail. She pioneered the idea of mixing things together like a fashion boutique with an art gallery, cafe, and bookstore in ways that would be copied the world over. If you enjoy the collaboration culture we're so accustomed to today, much of that movement can be traced to her. Andreessen recruited Sotsani to create a collection of new colorways for Arne Jakobsen's Series 7 chair called A Sense of Color, which included 16 new shades for the iconic stackable seat. I wanted to ask the former editor-in-chief of Italian Vogue how she first fell in love with the work of Jakobsen, why she created her legendary retail mecca in the first place, and what advice she has on designing your own home. And where did this first, the first idea for you to begin with uh, your gallery before there was even sort of Corso Como and it was just your own gallery. How did you decide to, to make that transition? Well, this happened after I left Vogue. I went to uh, be the director of Italian L and uh, after three issue and a half, I was fired. What happened? Uh, well, apparently I was uh, using too many uh, French designers and not enough Italian designers. You know, I was not uh, following exactly the rules of how many pages of advertising, how many pages of editorial. There was a little Revolution. At that point, I decided I'll never go back to magazines. That that was a sign. That was that was it for me. So as I went uh, full of dreams, I thought I would make a publishing company and make books. Of course, without realizing how expensive it is to make books. And uh, so, as editorial was what I knew, and uh, photography is what I lived with for 19 years. Even if it was fashion photography, I decided to open. Um, a gallery in Milano. I'd found this place, uh, which at the time was considered the outskirts of the city. And in a garage on the first floor, there was a printing company here. And when they could go, I opened my first exhibition with um, Louis Dal Wolf, the first photography exhibition. And after that, uh, it's now 30, yeah, it was 1990, 31 years have passed by. And today, when you hear this word concepts, a concept shop or a concept store, do you still like to use the term? Do you, or do you kind of think it's old fashioned at this point? At this point, as 30 years later, you know, I would like more to think about a destination place 
where you make, uh, you live an experience. Uh, but anyway, even then, the idea was to make a destination yes, because we were, uh, we were not in the center, in the courtyard, in the garage with no windows. So it actually is the contrary of what uh, commerce was all about at the time. And um, then, you know, we grew so many plants in the garden. Some people were thinking it was uh, a greenhouse. So it was, uh, then we opened the cafe. The cafe actually helped a lot, uh, the bigger cafe, to have people coming, especially in the weekends. But, you know, I, I was looking at what was happening in museums all over the world. All the museums only had a cafe, a cafeteria or whatever. Now they have restaurants. But And it, it's very well it's very important to keep like living experience all together. So that's why today I would call more in that sense. Today, the designs of Fritz Hansen have been a part of your life for decades. But do you remember the first time you ever laid eyes on the work of Arne Jakobsen? Yes. I remember because it was not a piece of furniture. I was living in London at the time. And there was a, a shop very down Tottenham Court. I, I even remember the place. It was a huge place for home accessories. And I bought the cylindra line, you know, the tea, coffee, the teapot, the coffee pot, the shaker for the, it's all in steel. But I was so fascinated by the shape and the handle, which is in kind of ebony wood. And they're very minimalistic. Yes. By the same time, uh, they're very, because minimalism sometimes doesn't communicate a lot. While this, uh, there is something very strong uh, in the in the shape and probably in the handle, that uh, I know it gave me immediate attraction. So I bought the whole series, went back to Milano with all my things, and then I started to uh, try to understand who he was, the designer. I didn't know, you know. I just bought because I liked, and so from that uh, I bought the egg chair. And then two egg chairs, three, four, five. A certain point, <laughs> my home. <laughs> what did you do with the egg chairs? There was because an egg chair is quite big. I put it in the center of my living room, and uh, instead of having a sofa, I, I took away the sofa. No sofas, only egg chairs in a round circle. What color were they? Were they leather? Uh, no, no. After I bought leather, those were blue. They're blue, burgundy, red. But I still have. Two today, one bright orange and one bright pink, almost uh, Indian pink. And so how many do you think in your life you, of these egg chairs have you had? A lot. I have, uh, well, I don't know. I never get tired of the egg chair. It, it looks like uh, I have in white leather, I have in black leather. Uh, I don't know. I never get tired. If I have to think where to put a, a piece of furniture in a new home, the first thing I would buy again is an egg chair. Do you think, was there anything about what someone like Arne Jakobsen or uh, Paul Kerholm or any, any of these sort of Fritz Hansen, these sort of modernist designers, what do you think, is there a, like, what did Arne Jakobsen have in common with, with someone like a, a Helmut Newton or, you know, oh, these sort of- Oh, that's an interesting question. Newt's the shape of the body. Ah, Okay. Because actually, when you think of uh, Jacobson egg, and also, oh, very much, the Series 7, it's almost the body of a woman. Yeah, that's got a waistline and everything. Yes. And that, do you think that maybe makes, gives it this sort of like eternal quality that can never tr truly 
change, right? It's so it's of the past and of the future and of today, and the figure is the figure, right? Exactly. But you know, I realize when uh, I look at my photography now called collection, I have so many nudes. <laughs> oh, really? And uh, I re- yes, I realize probably I'm attracted to the shape. You know, there's something very beautiful. And for this coloration project for the Series 7 chair, how did that begin? Well, I got an email and actually I didn't pay attention, so I, I didn't read it. For, and then a second email, a third email attracted my attention. I say, oh, well, but this I like. You know, why I didn't answer before? Stupid I am. So, <laughs> so I, I answered and, um, and I met Christian and... Uh, and Christian has been amazing in, you know, in helping me to put all this together to focus on, because uh, I started to go in uh, fantasy directions. And uh, it, it has been fantastic to work with him. He has been uh, canalized. Yes. And uh, so I started uh, making the colors and, and then uh, Christian came to Milano and I showed him the color. What did, what did he ask from you when you first, what was his brief to you in terms of the colors? And did he give you any direction? Was there any conversation? No, they sent all the material of what has been done in the past. And of course, you know, I didn't want to compare. I didn't want even to look at what Arne Jacobsen did because that was perfect, was his work. Then I love Werner Panton, absolutely love. So those were the two that, I like the most of the, the past. So I think my first idea was to get away from both because you cannot compare with those two masters. And so I think the approach was more like uh, if I had approached the fashion palette of colors. So I started to play with some yarns I have when I do the fashion palettes. Or I like very much when there is a little bit of black in the colors. You know, they make them... Uh, not so obviously sharp. Uh, so I was started thinking of the colors uh, uh, of the Indian. Uh, I used to, to travel a lot in India when I was young. And I used to come back with, um, you know, the women under the saris, they wear those little cotton uh, tops. And when you go in the Indian shops, you have thousands, thousands, thousands of colors, like walls of all the different colors that you can get lost. Because, But what is beautiful and that they have a little tiny bit of black inside and they all go with each other. You, you can go blind like this and you take it and they all work together. You don't have to think. It's very strange. It's an amazing experience. Uh, it's Quite very interesting how they all work together. And so that's, is that what you wanted these co- this collection of colors to do? Even though they're very different, you could put one in every color in a room and they would all speak to one another. Exactly. Yeah. That was the idea. Like a group of chairs, they could talk to each other. And you don't have to think if they look together next to each other. They will look together next to each other. And, and, and obviously, you're someone who 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 must see many different spaces and uh, how people live and, and how people live with a lot of modern design, a lot of mid-century design. Uh, what, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is designing their own home and, and using pieces like uh, the egg chair or the Series 7 or, or even a Werner Panton or anything from that period in terms of uh, putting these things together in a modern in a contemporary context, right? Because if you're thinking about color, you're thinking about actually living with these 
products? What, what kind of advice would you give? Well, first of all, not to ask a, a, a designer to do your home. Just do yourself. Really? Well, yes. I really think that's important. Because at the end, you cannot ask somebody else to make choices for you. I mean, if you really love your home. Well, why, why, why do you say that? Just because you think... Uh... It should be an extension of yourself? Of yourself, yes. And I think it should be a joy to go around and look for the pieces you like. I mean, it should be one of the most exciting things to do when you have your home and you're young or, or even uh, always, you know. And one of the pleasures should be really to make the choices. And uh, if you make the choices with your eye, which is the same eye, you cannot go wrong with yourself. You can go wrong for other people, but... You know, home is too good for, for you. It's where you live. That's where you spend, uh, for me, that I spend most, most of my time in the office. But it's uh, normally people spend time home. And uh, it's important to be surrounded. And because too, too much design is, is no good either. You know, it's like just to have the pieces you, that are important to you that make you feel happy to look at them. Because at the end, you know, we don't spend time to look at ourselves in the mirror, but we spend lots of time to look at what we have around us. So what is around you has to be a pleasure for you. One of the things that makes a company so important today is not just how a brand preserves old designs, but also how it pushes these concepts forward into the future. As we enter a new era of design, economics, travel, and culture, I wanted to ask Christian what makes Fritz Hansen more than just another maker of stuff. Christian, as Fritz Hansen is a brand that both preserves the past while pushing forward into the future with new products, like many of its contemporaries, I wanted to ask you, if you had to teach a masterclass today in how to manage these now historic designs like the egg chair, what would those top three rules be? We we have uh, we have debated that topic a lot, and it's probably been debated uh, ever since the seventies when a design department was was created in Fortensen to to break away from from uh, from you know product development or engineering or manufacturing as a free entity because that also happened in the seventies in Fortensen and and um, and I think that. At that, since that time, we have debated what 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 is our design philosophy and 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 what are the let's say what's the checklist that we talk to designers about and that how do we brief designers? And I think for a long time, for Tenson has been about daring to debate three things every time we talk about a product. You you need to talk about the functional. We are a functionalistic company. We we design furniture pieces for people. We don't do a single piece that is not used by a human. So so here again, the, the, the functionalistic part, you should be able to sit good ergonomically right. It should last for a lifetime. All of these things, all these, let's say, functional things are what we do. That's one thing. So think functional. And another thing is think rational. I think rational is a big part of our DNA. Rational in quality rational in manufacturing, rational in use of materials. I proudly brag that I think that we've been sustainable since 1960 because our products last a lifetime. And that is probably the most uh, sustainable thing you could ever do is keep it for life. Maybe even share it with your kids or whoever, <laughs> your sister or who you want to give it to. So so, so there again, the rational thought of what you do, talk about serenity, talk about purity of what you do, stuff like that. And then 
be emotional. Dare to take the emotional discussion about what you do as a designer. And dare to take the emotional discussion with your client or the designer about what you do. Because the swan would never have been this one unless there would have been an emotional discussion about the waistline and the beautiful curves and why that, Mr. Jacobs, why couldn't it just be straight? It would be much easier to manufacture. That must have been an emotional discussion. And and therefore, I think that talking rational, functional, and emotional is still part of our DNA. On top of that, I know that I should only take three, but I can't help myself taking a little a little bit more. <laughs> uh, that is also uh, uh, be smart, think smart. I think that Fortensen would not be and design and our products would not be unless you would have dared to challenge the smartness of what the manufacturer does. And then the last thing is be bold. Ideas, an, an idea or a product or a solution gets better by debate. Sitting alone in your uh, treehouse designing, uh, you need an immaculate talent to have everything right. So boldness is also about enabling yourself as a designer to express and to debate your design with uh, with your client or with your colleagues or with your whatever your your sounding board or whoever you use for your work that would probably be some of the ingredients where it is possible to make us want you again when it comes to this this new era that we're in of of global trade and global warming and information and the metaverse or whatever <laughs> whatever what keeps something like the industrial craftsmanship of Fritz Hansen uh, relevant in this new decade, sort of post-pandemic era that we're that we're entering. One of the big questions, <laughs> and and I I think there are I don't have a straight one liner. Uh, I, <laughs> I I think that that there's some circumstances right now that points to so if we take it from the back from from post-corona and what goes on in the world right now and and our even smaller world. Uh, meaning that now we just experienced something where we were all in the same boat for once. Uh, we we lacked that for a while. Sad that it's a disease and not something positive. But I think there is a, some some learnings here on 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 how we 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 work as humans and how we interact with each other and how we how our lives should look uh, when we've all had this scare. Um, and and a lot of those things trickle down to how we work, how we live, how we. And that triggers down to how you sit and how you how you feel and how you whatever. So I think we've learned a lot about the, the, some of the effects of of this pandemic in our clients' behaviors. But we are also a little bit stepping ourselves over our own feet and and not tumbling over, but experiencing something where we suddenly see a a growth in the sales of our products in this troublesome time. Simply probably based on the fact that you were asked by your employer to go home with your laptop and sit and work at your home office. And there you sat at your rockety chair at your old dining table that you sat on for 30 minutes every day to eat, but you didn't sit there for eight hours. And suddenly you said to yourself, now it's enough. Now I need a new dining table and a new chair, whatever, because I'm probably going to sit here for a while. So we've actually seen a, a slight growth uh, or growth in our turnover uh, during this pandemic, simply because we think people have changed their homes a little bit. They have uh, felt a rational and functional need for something that, that they didn't have that has put its focus on us and, and, and products like ours. But I also think that we always balance on this edge between uh, our classic or heritage products and our contemporary products and 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 how do we how do we handle that topic 
in a modern world that moves forward and 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 moves uh, with new trends and new inspirations and sustainability and new new uh, eras of of, uh, of consumption of goods and and stuff like that. I, I think we have two simple tools. One is 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 quality and and sustainability. Let's let's be honest here. We 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 uh, we use up resources to manufacture what we do, but then we need to do it right. And those first of all, those resources should be recycled and recyclable. And we should do it right, and we should make it in a quality that lasts. Then it's up to the consumer to decide if they want to keep their furniture for life. Then it's not our responsibility anymore, but we should do our utmost to do that. That that we can do in 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 all the contemporary products that we develop. But with the heritage products, we 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 don't have the same opportunity because we can't design them for time. We need time to be able to love them, and I think the only tool we have is keep them relevant. And, and, and that's a big word, but um, one of my key issues that I always debate with the designers and with the teams and with the pretends in general is relevant in time. What, what is that? If you, if you, how, why is a, uh, probably in 20 years we will still have and remember the iPad or the iPod or the iPhone or whatever. And, and we would still debate its relevance. Uh, with products like furniture, the relevance is something different. It carries a body 45 centimeters above the floor in a sitting position because you need to rest or you need to work or something. There's another relevance in that. And 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 therefore, I think it boils back to, to us being able to keep the products relevant in their expression, uh, appearance, and in their attraction. So it becomes emotional again, uh, what we, how we handle uh, the uh, the transformation in times where where demands probably uh, are changing. And then, of course, we look into what's the future of sitting? What's the future of working? What's the future of, of meeting? What's the future of uh, what whatever? What is the future <laughs> of sitting? Yeah, who knows? It, it, it's not lying down. We tried that in the 70s <laughs> and we tried it in, <laughs> in Rome and it didn't work, either of them. So um, so I think it's something about the quality and ergonomics and longevity and, and, and it's about something, it's about some, some of the finer details. But I think the way that we work uh, is going to change and it has changed already. I don't know how much more it'll change, but we also said that 10 years ago when there was no iPad and 20 years ago when there was no laptop. And today you work in trains and planes and whatever. So, so it is changing and, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I cannot predict, but I can imagine that, that the, the way of using furniture and the way that we use it and the purpose we use it for will change. And therefore, we probably need to be smart and bold and innovative on how does a meeting take place in the future and what do you need there? Do you need to stand up? Do you need to lie down? Do you need to sit down? All of those things I think we, we are curious about right now. Thank you to Christian, Carla, and the teams at Fritz Hansen and 10 Corsal Como for making this episode happen. To fill your own home with these eternal icons of design, visit fritzhensen.com. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.